And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. We'll be receiving our new Monheim Microphones soon, and we're very excited. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on December 2nd, 2022. Hugh Weldon gained early knowledge of horticulture working on vegetable farms in Ireland, his home country. He earned a horticulture certificate from the practical experience he gained, which led him to a supervisory position with a landscape nursery with 30 staff members. He was in the position for five years. Hugh then worked as a foreman in a flower and bulb nursery for two years, where he continued to broaden his horticultural background. He emigrated to the U.S., for greater opportunities in the horticulture industry in 1993 and worked with an arborist learning all aspects of tree care, planting, pruning, and removal. With tree experience under his belt, Hugh worked with a company to learn numerous aspects of landscape maintenance of residential and business properties, which included snow removal. In 1995, Hugh applied for a grounds position at Villanova University and continued his education, earning a horticulture degree from Temple University. After several promotions and numerous years of work, Hugh became the horticultural supervisor, followed by horticultural manager. He can now say he has been happily tending the staff and the landscape at Villanova for over 27 years. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Hugh. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for making time for us. And of course, we're interested in hearing about your journey. As I understand, you're from Ireland originally, and I do have a favorable bias for anyone coming out of Ireland, just in terms of their appreciation of growing up in such a beautiful country and coming to the United States. So tell us about how that all played out. Like I said, I grew up in Ireland in a little town called Rush in County Dublin. It's about uh, 18 miles north of city, Dublin city. Uh, it's a coastal town, but it's got good fertile soil. Uh, it used to be called the market gardening capital of Ireland because there's so much vegetables grown there. We got very little frost, so year-round we'd have vegetables. Uh, anything, Obviously, the potatoes were 
popularity. Potatoes, cabbage, carrots, cauliflowers, a lot of greenhouses. So the tomatoes and cucumbers are all grown in there in the summer and lettuce in the winter. Been working on the farms, family, friends, and uncles since I was about 10. Mm. After school and all summer long. And, you know, in the year, uh, as I got a little older, 12, 13, then would be, be Saturdays over there. Sundays were still respected as non working days. Uh, <laughs> school. Didn't do that good in school, so my mom said, well, if you're not going to college, you know, you're going to have to do something. You're not going to be a laborer for these farmers all your life. So she pushed me into a garden center that had a horticultural program, teaching it for nine months. So I joined that, did pretty well in that, and they decided to keep me on until I got a job. There was 30 of us. They just kept two of us on. The very next week, a very well-known landscaper came in and asked one of the manager for a nursery that he's about to build. So I started there. You got 200 plants totally covered in weeds. And he said, man, we need this all weeded out. I'm like, oh boy, what did I get myself into? And he, said, stick with me. I'm gonna, he said, stick with me, I'm going to grow this nursery. And sure enough, after five and a half years that I was there, oh, sorry, before that, he, he was importing trees and shrubs, plants from England, Holland, and Germany. When I left him, he was turning over a million plants and exporting to England and Holland. The only nursery in Ireland that was doing that at the time. Wow. So you you were the one who put that little spark in his nursery? Uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> he had his own spark, but uh, definitely helped grow it. It was a, a time, especially in the busy early summer, there was a lot of potting going on. There'd be over 30 people working there. It's a big operation. Yeah. yeah. Hugh, did, just for clarification, did you say that when you started at the nursery, uh, did your new boss, had he just purchased an existing nursery that was overgrown? No, he, oh, okay. he, he was a landscaper, so he did a lot of leftover plants that were just oh okay held right. for the, for the next job. But they just getting overgrown, and he had he already had the sites there. So you were pretty quickly engaged with propagation and growing woody ornamentals. Yes, yeah. After five and a half years, work was drying up and had some issues. So I went back to uh, got a job with a family friend that it was a flower and bulb farm. Turns out that I'm actually buying from relatives of that family over here now. Oh. Yeah, it's the same, same family. They split in Holland and went to Ireland. And then a few years later, part of the family in Holland came to the United States. And they import them and sell them over here, bulbs, uh, uh, Rurox. So what was the motivation for coming to the U.S.? I know there was a lot of stuff going on at that time. It was, what, in the 90s, did you call early, it? Yeah, the early 90s. There was a lot of unemployment in Ireland, struggling to find work in the landscaping business. And I've come from a big family, and a lot of them had emigrated and moved back and forth. Well, if I'm going to emigrate, I'm going to go to someplace I can speak English. Uh, <laughs> I can right, understand right. the food. <laughs> yeah. The United States was perfect. I had a friend that had been over here previously, and he'd been back in Ireland for five years and he says, let's head over to the United States. He says, I know we can get work there. He was still in contact with landscapers here. So so then you worked in the tree industry, is that correct? You were working for an arborist when you got here? Yes, working for, uh, it was actually an Irish guy that had started up his own business. He had a large business on the main line of, out of Philadelphia uh, in Bryn Mawr. What was his name? That was Mike McGee. Oh, Mike McGee, okay, yeah. Uh, sadly passed away, so I worked for him for a while and then, Worked for his son also. They bought over the business. And they were very well known in the tree industry in this area. They used to take down the biggest, baddest ones. You know, whenever 
the smaller companies couldn't figure it out, they'd, they'd call him in. I still remember the first day I was there, a big chipper, and it was one of the first self-feeding chippers in the area, trying to put the sticks in. And he's like, Tommy, push it in, and like, it's not going to bite you. <laughs> like, uh, I'd never seen a chipper before, and it's monster. <laughs> I was laughing when I see the chippers now, some of them have a sign on This machine is not vegetarian. Right, so, right, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, some of those machines were really dangerous back yeah. in the day. I remember, you know, people could get sucked in. It, like I was telling somebody the other day that it was like farmers who would get stuck in the hay balers. Um, that was one of the things we were told when we first started agriculture school. This is one of the most dangerous industries in the world. And it was true, you know. Yeah. So then you were with a private tree care company on Philadelphia's main line. And then at some point, is that where you found yourself moving the direction of working for an educational institution like Villanova? Well, I did the tree work and I also did landscaping on and off with different landscapers. But that work always dried up in the winter. So I had two rough winters uh, with no work, you know, three, four months only when it get a day or two when it snowed. So wasn't paying the bills. did a little bit of roofing in the second winter, but roofing in January and February wasn't my gig. So I was like, <laughs> I got to find something more permanent. Back then, you know, for personal computers, so looking in the papers, there was a job actually advertised for Rosemont College. Oh, yeah. Didn't get that. I knew in the interview I didn't get that. They'd already given it away. So I met somebody and he asked me, he said, well, why don't you apply to Villanova? Said, are, they, are they hiring? I said, yeah, they have three positions open since last week. The way to apply, and they gave me the papers the next day, dropped them off, got the call, and then got the interview. I was like, okay. They called me a week later, told me I had the position. You need you to come in and fill out some papers. So I said, what day, what time? He said, well, how about next Tuesday? Well, I said, okay, what time? Well, One o'clock. I said, okay. So it was St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> 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 they wanted to see if I was celebrating already. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Trickley's and Kevin O'Donnell interviewed me. And Trickley patted <laughs> me on the back. He says, you found a home here. Oh, that's, oh, lo- that's, that's great. lovely. That's lovely. Well, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show was um, my class visit to Villanova a couple weeks ago. The passion that you showed for the plants and the trees on campus made everyone in the classroom comment, this guy really loves his job. You can tell he's really passionate about trees and he really is caring about what he does. And, you know, for students to recognize that, and I felt like they were following you around like the Pied Piper on campus as we were walking around. But, you know, they hung on to every one of your words and the writing after the class that they they had written, every one of them said you had such passion for the subject matter. And I think that that's something that is really important for what we do and for how we manage the environment. And the trees that you have on your site, maybe you can share some of that information with, you know, how many trees do you plant a year? How how does that happen? Some of the big, old, venerable trees that are on the front lawn of the school. Um, give, Give us a little bit of background there, because you certainly do have a very vast background in trees and nursery stock. Thank you. Yeah, we have 265 acre campus. We have a lot of trees on it. On the center campus area that you took your class, uh, has a lot of big older trees. We have some of the oldest trees there in that area. 
There's a couple of big burr oaks uh, that we didn't get to see. We believe they're the oldest, 200, 250 year olds. They're next to Alumni Hall, which predates the Civil War. It was actually a hospital in the Civil War. We know those trees are old. They were there then. You know, they're, they're very old. Out on the front lawn, we have some European beaches that are majestic. We've been trying to save them from beach bark disease that they get. Uh, we've been spraying them. Uh, the European copper beach, uh, and there's a huge weeping beach. And the weeping beach is beautiful, great canopy. But the best place to see it is when you go in underneath of it, where the branches come down and root in and come back up even bigger. They're really great. I know the students love that. Going in there, they talked about that. They said, oh my gosh, going underneath that big weeping beach was amazing. And you feel so different when you're on the inside versus on the outside looking at it. It feels like you're being like hugged by it. Yeah, it's definitely one of the highlights of the tour. The other thing I noticed that you talked about was a a stand of crab apples that you have planted. I know the school has gone under some very big building projects. And if you could talk about some of those and also about the planting that sits in front of the chapel, which is one of the key landmark sites for Villanova University. Yeah, so we did have some uh, huge construction a few years ago, built what they call the commons, a lot of dorms and a restaurant. And to accommodate that, we had to build a pedestrian bridge over Lancaster Avenue, Route 30. And there was originally a crabapple orchard in front of the church, and that was getting old. But to accommodate the pedestrian bridge, they had to mound up the soil for a walking path to it. So they had to be removed. And the idea was that when it was originally planted, that when they were in flower, the white crabapples, when you look from across the street from the large surface parking lot, uh, spires of the church would be up in the clouds. Uh, that was kind of neat. So they, we replaced that with a newer malice crab apple tree, uh, sugar time, and oh, yeah. keep the original idea of the the spires being up in the clouds when it's in full flower. And I think sugar time is one that is uh, got a little bit more late summer resilience on uh, the leaf spot diseases. Yeah. Yeah, that was the idea of getting something with a little more resistance. Because you've got your hands full with those beech trees, I bet, in terms of uh, beech bark disease. Yeah, unfortunately, we lost a few across different parts of the campus yeah. over the years that have been here. And uh, it's always sad to see them go. I mean, it takes five or six years, but once you see that, those first little black dots, yeah. um, you know, it's just slow decline. Within two, three years, you just have huge chunks of bark coming off the tree. Yeah, how how are your oaks doing, Hugh? In general, uh, the white oaks aren't too bad. It's the red oaks have uh, been getting a lot of scorch and disease. They've been declining pretty quickly. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed that you had on your campus and you talked about to our students was the pawpaw, Asamina triloba. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how they got there? Sure. My old supervisor Chuck Leeds had bought little ones. So little foot, 18 inches tall, uh, years ago. And he planted them out in a little nursery area out on West Campus. Uh, I didn't really know what they were. So as they grew up, when I came supervisor a year later, the crew came to me and asked me, he says, we've got these black magnolias out on West Campus. You know, got them small, we've grown them on. Can we plant them around campus? I'm like, black magnolias, sure. I saw the leaf. It looked like a magnolia leaf. I hadn't seen the flower. But the guys told me it's a little black flower on it early in the spring. I'm like, okay, then I'll plant them here, there. There was about six of them. Plant them around campus. Well, the sustainability manager got an email from 
professor asking where's his pawpaw trees. Oh my. So I'm like, pawpaw trees? Now I had to look up to see what a pawpaw tree was. <laughs> and I saw them, I'm like, oh, okay, they look like magnolia leaves here. I said, well, I said, tell them they're not pawpaws, they're black magnolias. He got back to me, he said, well, no, they're pawpaws. I know my pawpaw trees. I said, well, they didn't have any fruit on them. Well, sent a picture of the fruit on them. Like, okay, well, I got to bite my tongue on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Sure enough, it took a few years, but they did start to fruit like uh, three, four years ago. The first two years, I didn't get any. Somebody got them before me. I was showing them what they were. But the last couple of years, I've gotten to taste them. They're really delicious. They are great. Are they growing up in thickets or are they single stem? Uh, Most of them are thickets. Okay. Uh, four, four thickets of them. Okay. Not fruit. Single stems one haven't fruited, but the thickets have. Yeah, interesting, interesting. That's that's great. It's fun. They even had somebody snatching their um, their suckers from the yeah. Asamina for propagation. I you think mean? It's really. Um, yeah, I got a call one Saturday morning, like about nine o'clock in the morning. I wasn't able to answer. I called back like two hours later. Like, oh, yeah, we're calling because somebody was digging up trees. I'm like, what? But they're digging them up over there near Fedigan Hall. I'm like, what? I said, well, they gave you a name. He said it was, oh, you said it was okay. I said, no way. I said, I didn't give anybody permission to go in there and dig them up. I said, who was it? Oh, we don't know. I said, well, I said, I want to see the report on it because the name should be on the report. So the name was on it. And I'd never heard of them before. I said, wow. how many did you get? Said, well, probably 30 or 40. I'm like, what? So the pawpaws, uh, yeah, they, they, someone, I was going to say a gentleman got, got them, it wouldn't be a gentleman, <laughs> to, uh, in there stealing pawpaws. So he got 30 or 40 of them, they were, you know, they're pretty expensive, even at like a foot or 18 inches tall. You know, yeah. he either sold them or he's got a big farm somewhere with them on it. Yeah, it's interesting. Pawpaws the past couple of years have gotten uh, a fair amount of mention in the press. And throughout Philly and the Delaware Valley, you continue to see them popping up in in different locations. It seems to me that it is most likely some of this uh, climatological change we're experiencing in terms of warmer temperatures. And I'm finding that Pawpaws are uh, adaptable to, doesn't necessarily need to be the part shade that I always thought. I'm, I am seeing them in full sun. I had a big one that was in the front on the front lawn, and I sat it next to my Franklinia. They seemed to, I didn't know this at the time, but they were both growing in the same spot that John Bartram found them. Mm. So they do really well together. But we planted a lot of them at campus. It takes seven years before you can actually have fruit on them or they'll flower. They're a fruit that is native. Uh, You would find it here, but mainly there's a big stand of it down in Delaware, right by Nemours Hospital. There's an old stand of it. I don't know how old it is, but it's big. And we used to go there with students just to see what it's like to see this massive forest of pawpaw. But it's a plant, again, because it was a native that really people weren't paying attention to natives like that. So now they are paying attention to it and people are using it for science and especially in your science department, they want to use it for riparian areas. Hmm. So, yeah. it's Yeah, I love showing it off, especially in the early fall when the students uh, last year brought out a knife with me so you cut it up and share it. 
it's amazing to see them the reaction and trying to describe the taste of it. Everybody's got a slightly different reaction and a little different taste. Yeah. So, Hugh, you have 260 acres. I'm just wondering at this point uh, what the process is for annual assessment of do we need more trees? Do we plant more trees this year? Do we take five years off? Are we going to plant a dozen trees or do we need to, you know, what, what, what are some of the questions that go into the decision making there? Uh, well, they're still working working on a new master plan. Okay. And is that being done in-house, the master plan, or do you have an outside consultant? Uh, I don't have anything much to do with it, but a lot of it is in-house, but they do bring in consultants. And But Villanova would put a lot of input into it. I see. What the, what the need is. Yeah. So. My experience is that professionals like you on the big campuses, universities want to grow. And I've noticed your job, not you per se, but it can be a very difficult job when you hear from the other departments that, you know, the new science building is going here. And there's often some heartbreaking decisions and there's meeting of the minds and meetings with the architect and the planners and the landscape architects. And sometimes expectations, shall we say, are a little bit unreasonable in terms of building here, but don't lose the tree. <laughs> Sounds like you, looks like you've got a story or two. <laughs> yeah, well, we see that a lot, unfortunately. Like, I mean, if the tree... We do have some big buildings going up now, actually a science building and a lot of other smaller projects. But whenever you do understand, like, I mean, if the trees are in the footprint of the new building, you know, they have to go. It's fine. But there's often a lot of big laydown area around it also. Right. Try to put up tree protection, keep the big equipment away from the roots, whatever we can do. A lot of things, you know, to get a lot of pushback from the contractors and that. They have to get closer and closer to the tree, you know, and they try to use the drip line as a guide to where to put up the fences. But, you know, I'm always hoping to push it out a lot further, but get pushed back. But the problem is, if you push that tree line out, they need that room, they're going to just take down the fence, and then there's nothing. So it's always a little, got to have a little give and take. Yeah, a lot of diplomacy, a lot of give and take. We do have to take down trees for those projects, but, you know, the project managers would go by what the township regulations are, you know, whatever the diameter of the tree is, then they have to replace it with so many other trees. Right, right, yeah. So whenever we finish the project, there is always a big landscape going back in. The the Metasequoia that was protected there, do you want to give a little bit of history about that one? Uh, The one that was fenced in and they wanted to put a parking lot there? So we do have a Metasequoia there, and I was told for many years that, it was a second generation from the first expedition to China that brought them back. And the first one was in 1942 when they found it. And then they didn't, because of World War II, they didn't bring any back. They went back in 45 and got them. And several different uh, arboretums were involved with that. And I was told we got, it was, I think it was Morris Arboretum gave us one. And they have a plaque on it that was planted in 1956 by Father Kluklaka, who was the president at the time. I had a behind-the-scenes tour with Morris maybe 10 years ago, told him the story behind it. And he said, 1956, we got it in 45. We actually didn't grow it until 47. But 
So 47 to 56 is not enough time to plant one and get a second generation, make it big enough to give away, plant it. They said, pretty sure you've got a first generation. So I happened to see the plants that they want to put a parking lot there. So I went and fought for it. I said, no, that's a first generation tree. Like, I mean, you realize what you're going to lose with you take that away. So they came back and said, okay, we can save your tree. Well, that's great. The students thought that you were like the Lorax saving that tree. Uh, we got back. Can you imagine having to lose a tree like that, you know? How many metasequoia yeah. do you have on campus? Yeah. And do you um, is it a tree that you would continue to plant? We're we're quite fond of them here at the at the podcast. I'm trying to think of many. We do have several, and the one that Eve was talking about that is uh, third biggest in Pennsylvania. We had a lot, about a dozen trees measured in 2019. Okay, came up as the third, and they say to the students, it's only the third biggest, but it's the oldest, so. They can have their <laughs> the two bigger ones. Yeah. They often ask why it's, if it's the oldest and why isn't it the biggest to try to explain that it's, you know, different soil types, maybe the slope, maybe the feeding they got, maybe the mulching could be any number of reasons. But we do have several others. We had actually a big one moved. We're part of transforming the campus landscape. We're putting in a lot of pavers and changing it to make it a lot more pedestrian friendly. And we lost some trees, but they saved some. One of them was a joint or metasequoia, Dawn Red or metasequoia, and did have a time-lapse video of that. That took uh, a little over a week to move it. The, the oh, yeah, you can you tell them how they can see that? Can you tell them how they can see that online, if anybody's interested? Yeah, I believe if you look up uh, Villanova Big Tree Move. Okay. Villanova Big Tree Move? Okay. Yeah. And that was a, a metasequoia that got moved? Yes, yeah. So they brought in a company from Texas, brought them up to PA. Uh, they dug all around it with a machine, uh, probably maybe 60 feet, 15, 60 foot circumference around the, the root ball, and then dug it and finished it off by hand, put in a load of pipes underneath of it, steel pipes, chained them together, jacked it up, drove a trailer underneath of it, dumped it down, and then did the reverse, maybe 100 yards away. So what's the aftercare like? Uh, for something like that. And is it tacky and in poor taste to ask how much that cost? Uh, I wasn't privy to the cost of it, but it was in the tens of thousands. Okay. <laughs> uh, they had a, probably a crew of five or six for over a week, for about eight or nine days, and, you know, equipment and all that. So, yeah, tens of thousands. What's the aftercare like, Hugh? So we've been keeping a close eye on it. Uh, it was staked for almost three years afterwards. We got it a, a deep fertilization into the root, all of it, keeping it mulched. There was a couple of droughts, especially this year and a couple of years ago, where we watered deep watering in the summertime, maybe every week or two, not not too often. And was the watering like over top with oscillating sprinklers, or were you injecting? Actually, the last two years it was, but before that, actually, the first couple of years actually we had soaker hoses on it. Okay. To, it's, again, it's, that was about eight or 10 years ago. So Right. Yeah, that is uh, amazing. Yeah, I hope our listeners check that out because uh, when you hear, on the one hand, it's like, oh, the price tag, you could do so much with that kind of money. But at the other end of it, to see a big, magnificent tree with some historical significance moved on campus, I mean, it shows the institutions commit to tree preservation. Well, it also has to do with the um, association with soil, too, the mycorrhiza and the 
all the myriad of organisms that are attached to that tree that aren't lost to, you know, take down. And a lot of people don't realize that. And it's just coming out now in science that they're saying that if you leave a grouping of trees on a site when you're developing it, that that grouping of trees that you leave is going to help the other trees develop much quicker because they have interconnectivity within the soil. If they're close by, they'll, they'll establish much quicker. And there's so much that we don't know about what goes on underneath the soil that I really think we really need to know more about that. And in your case, moving a tree like that and taking care of it for over 10 years is a big commitment. That's a really big commitment, but it's also a big commitment to provide all those uh, microorganisms to the soil around it. Yeah, like I said, we didn't move it too far, only about 100 yards. And the only thing they're careful about is the direction, planting it in the same direction to sunlight as before, not twisting it around. And, and the soil they planted in, while it was close by, I'm sure it wasn't original. So because there is a lot of buildings in that area, the soil would have been shifted around over the years. But yeah. it's, it's doing well. It hasn't, it hasn't really grown that much. It did get some plant shock, some shock from the transplant. but. I think it's starting to grow again now. And how many years has it been? About 10 years. Oh, it's been 10 years since it was moved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about staffing. In-house, what do you have your people doing versus when you go outside, maybe for a professional tree care company? Are your people able to do some of the uh, tree maintenance tasks at hand? Yeah, we'll do the small work. Anything we can reach from the ground or with a pole saw. Uh, we do have two small bucket trucks. We can go up like 30, 35 feet and do some deadwooding, some pruning. Especially this time of the year from now on till the spring, we'll do a little here and there. We do bring in tree company uh, to do the larger takedowns and any of the larger deadwooding that's high up or if there's anything. And uh, there's a lot of targets underneath. And we try to bring them in, schedule them during spring break, fall break, winter break, when the students aren't around. Yeah, and other services, uh, do you feel like you have to um, go outside when it comes to application for pest management? For the bigger trees, yes, we have done that, but not so much. We do have uh, eight certified pesticide applicators. Yeah. We don't use that much on the trees. Uh, we've talked about the beech trees. We do treat the hemlocks, but it's only half dozen of them. And we don't spray them. Past we used to use horticultural oil or not, but they're just too big for that now. Yeah. We're too close to buildings. So not that it damages the building, just get it on the windows and everything. So we, we just treat them with a soil drench right around the trunk. Right. And we have had a few small, couple of outbreaks of scale on some of the oaks, the willow oaks and shingle oaks. So we've treated them in the last couple of years. Again, just a soil drench around it. Yeah. One one of the things that I was impressed with years ago when I would bring students to your campus was your, your uh, commitment to runoff and how you manage that and utilize trees to help with runoff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we have a professor that's very knowledgeable in stormwater management. So we do have a lot of rain gardens on campus. We've retrofitted a few buildings and put in new rain gardens or the roof coming off the 
buildings would go into these rain gardens and they would monitor a lot of them to see how much is evaporating, how much is soaking into the ground. Uh, we have another area that's as a we would call a treatment train. It's a multi-story parking garage. About three quarters of that water is collected and is run off into a small colored treatment train. It's like a manufactured creek. Then it goes down through there into storage area. And recently they changed where they can pump it back up and do that again. And they do test that water again for how much volume and how much different levels of oil and chemicals that would be in them, how much salt is coming off, you know, for salt in the building for, for snow management, snow and ice. They do test a lot of them for that. One of the new buildings, one of the new dorms, in the commons, there's huge stormwater collection basins underneath that, and they pump that up and they use that for the air conditioning, for cooling the air conditioning systems. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but they're reusing the water, which is great. I'm trying to think what else they might use it for. But I think just last time I counted, I think there was like 20 rain gardens on campus. Oh my, that's very impressive. Wow, that's a lot of water captured. <laughs> Yeah. It is, and I, and I think that's the first time that I saw a campus of your size using uh, bald cypress or taxodium to stick on, well, on on campus right around your collection basins. Yeah. I thought they, that was really impressive. What better tree to plant in a rain garden? Right. <laughs> bald cypress when they can grow in standing water. Although, just to go in that direction a little bit more, this is a question for both you all. Bald cypress is at the top of the list with rain gardens, then where do we go from there after bald cypress? What what are the other trees people should be thinking about for the rain garden situation? Well, you have to be careful with, with planting trees in rain gardens because, you know, the size of them. Uh, if they get too big, then they're going to disturb the, the rain garden. Or if they blow over, they'll pull the bank over with them and the berm that's built around them. But uh, depending on the size of the rain garden too, you could use like river birch, another one. Yeah. Robert, sycamore. Some of you, a lot of shrubs, a lot of shrubs can be used too. Your willows, as you mentioned, um, black willow. Um, some of your non-native willows can be used. Your cornice, your twigged cornices, especially the silky dogwood, amomum, uh, cornice amomum is, is found in wetlands throughout this region. That would be another good one, right? Yeah. The other thing is going to remember that rain gardens, well, they do flood and fill up with water. They're empty 90% of the time, or a huge percentage of the time at least. So you got to have things that'll take a drought also. Yeah. And plants and trees that'll take drought. Typical construction for rain gardens, does that mean there's a geotextile at the bottom that is the foundation and you're building up from that? No. It's no. just straight excavation then. Yeah. Yeah. And geotextiles, I think, in many times are overused. I mean, I see people using them to, to, to prevent weeds, but that's the most horrible thing you could possibly do to a plant. And I, I've been on properties where I had to excavate five layers of the stuff because people wow. were just too lazy to weed. And every time they got weeds, they put another layer of landscape fabric down and it was plastic backed. No, it's not okay. It's, it's just not okay. And it doesn't work long term anyway, because no. usually most people are covered with some kind of mulch. Right. Uh, exactly. And that degrades. And if it's not mulch, it's stone. And even the stone will get will build up soil in between them. And then the weeds grow on that and they grow down through it. And then when you go try to weed them out, you're pulling it all up with the weeds. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what 
But I had layers and layers of mulch and layers and layers of the uh, landscape fabric. It's just humans trying to figure things out. Well, it's things that we we always know better. We don't. Yeah. You know, if we watch nature, we would learn from it. You know, yeah. and and I know, you know, with what Hugh's doing at at Villanova, it's it's pretty impressive. They have a really beautiful campus, and the old trees, especially, are just very well taken care of. One question I wanted to make sure I got around to before we wrap up, Hugh, is with uh, I'm assuming you have a significant amount of leaf drop, 260 acres. Are you able to apply any of those best practices in terms of leaf capture, leaf shredding, mulching on site, tree rings where uh, leaves can be left to decompose and and things like that? Uh, We do collect a lot of the leaves. Wherever we can just blow them into woodlands, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. We'll collect them and if there's a bare spot in the woods, we can dump them there. But a lot of them are brought over to our West Campus compost site where oh. we put, put them in windrows, uh, keep it turned, and then we'll use that as mulching or for mixing with soil and planting with it again. So we collect it, we both blow them into piles and suck them up with leaf vacuums or collect them with the, the box in the back of a mower and then we'll bring them over to West Campus. For a number of years, it wasn't, we weren't that successful with it because we just didn't have the time or the machinery to turn that compost and get covered in weeds and the crew afraid that you're bringing out the compost with all the weed seeds in it. And But we did get a new loader a couple of years ago and the crew have been doing a great job with composting, uh, just keeping it turned every couple of months, every month or two, depending on the season. And they, they really enjoy re- reusing that. And they've noticed they've used it in lawns, repairing lawns. They've been doing some of that with the compost, just putting an inch or two down and seed it. And they've been having great success with the lawns doing that because that compost will hold the moisture for the seeds. Yeah, it's a great product. And it's also a savings, too, in the long run, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it, yeah. Yeah, some of the native areas around ponds and stuff like that, that's not high visibility areas. They've used a the compost there as mulch mm-hmm. and any new plantings. I love that. Well, we have to ask our favorite question, Q, and that is, what is your favorite tree or group of trees? <laughs> uh, I've gotten asked that a few times over the last couple of years. And I always say that's, that's like asking a, a parent, who's their favorite child? That's right. <laughs> and everybody says the same thing. And we're glad that everybody realizes <laughs> that you can't pick a favorite child. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least you can't tell the other children. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do have several favorites. Like you mentioned, the, the big beech trees, the weeping beech, the dawn redwood, uh, the big bur oaks that we think are the oldest trees on campus. Another favorite is the tricolored beech. I watched there was a small tricolored beech planted on campus and I watched that grow for years and years when I was on the crew and got up and checked it out and looked at the label on it for years and then I realized it's, oh, you know, it's a donated, a dedicated tree. And I was like, ah. And I looked at it for a couple of times, a couple of tours and I pointed out and then I realized, oh, the date on it. What's that date? It was April 28, 1993. Like, oh, light bulb moment. And I was like, oh, that was the day that came to the United States. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. so I was trying to think of what it usually said. I always ask people, you know, that, that was a Wednesday. April 20, 1999. When, <laughs> 28, 99, that was a Wednesday. And like, I'm like, how do I know that? Well, that's a great story. Your, your anniversary, it's a birthday, it's a... 
No, so Theta came to the United States. So. Wow. That's definitely one of my favorites trees. I mean, it's beautiful in the springtime. The colors on it, phenomenal. It is Very a beautiful cool. tree. It, with that beautiful pink and white tip, and uh, it's really beautiful. Well, it was really a delight to have you on our podcast, Hugh, talking about trees at Villanova. You did ask a question earlier, and I didn't get around to answering how many trees we plant on campus. Oh, yes. Thank you. Well, you better fill us in. <laughs> New construction, we're always, you know, planting lots of trees for that. Uh, but the grounds crew themselves, we usually plant 70 to 100 trees on campus a year. Oh, my goodness. Campus is split up into different zones, and I always, uh, seven different zones. So I always try to push at least 10 trees on each zone every year, like three or four in the spring and six or seven in the fall, sometimes a couple more. And can you do some of that planting in-house, or, or is that to subcontractors as well? Most of it is in-house. Okay. So contracted it out, but not very often. But yeah. And do you have to dedicate uh, some crew time for uh, summer watering then? Absolutely. Yeah. They know they, when they plant it, they have to take care of it. And yeah. But it's a lot easier to water it and take care of it than it is to take it out and replant it again. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, wise words from uh, from a veteran who's uh, seen it all on a couple continents. Yep. Well, thank you again, Hugh. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. We'll look forward to seeing, well, driving past Villanova or stopping in and taking another tour. Please do, anytime. We've been here for a long time. We'll hopefully be here for a lot longer. And, uh, Excellent. Thanks again, Hugh. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Oh, my God.